more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Jenna. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate student and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students and postdocs each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blog.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live and today we are lucky to be joined by Cade Job. Cade is a first-year master's student in the Department of Food Science and Technology who is here to talk about the spooky phenomenon known as hop creep. Hi Cade, welcome to the booth. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Ooh, happy Halloween! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, things are going to get creepy in a little bit. (laughs) Um, before it can get creepy, uh, we need to take a little crash course, which we often do at the start of our episodes, but, um, this one might inspire people to pick up a new hobby. So let's, let's, let's get into it. Give us a crash course on how to make beer. (laughs) Okay. I'll try to keep it short, although I don't know if I can, but, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's pretty easy to make beer. It's not terribly difficult. Pretty much anybody can do it. Uh, you just have to have a few basic ingredients. Um, most uh, stores and stuff will have places where you can get these ingredients, but malted barley, uh, hops, water, and yeast. And uh, if you turn, it turns out if you kind of mix all those things together, you can make beer. Now, the long and the short way of it is you take malted barley and uh, you heat it up and then extract sugars out of it. So what you want to make is a sugary solution, basically like malt sugar water uh, is what you try to do. So that's called the mashing process. And that's one of the big uh, things that we do is brewing. So you do that, you make a sugary solution, boil it, add hops to it, and then pitch yeast in. And so the cool thing that yeast do is yeast turn all of that sugar into CO2 and alcohol, right? Which is why we have beer. And that's what we, that's what, uh, that's sort of the crash course. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do uh, in terms of brewing. But what's really germane to us and germane to this hop creep topic is when you add hops, okay? So like I said, yeast is the one that ferments, all right? It turns sugar into alcohol uh, and CO2. And yeast, whenever it's finished, once it's done consuming all the sugars, it kind of just hangs out and either hibernates or just kind of hangs out swimming around in solution until it's filtered out. If you add hops at that point, this crazy thing happens called hop creep. Uh, And what happens is more CO2 is produced, more alcohol is produced. And if you've already got your beer in a package, boom, exploding bottles. (laughs) So that's what we talk about uh, whenever we talk about hop creep. Awesome. So is this a specific phenomenon in a certain type of beer or is can all beer be subject to this hop creep? 
Oh yeah, no, this is a, it's a hop related phenomenon. Um, and so, you know, it, really it's not like to, to call it, it it's, we call it hop creep because generally whenever we're putting the hops in at the end of the process, we call it dry hopping and brewing. Uh, that's if we're trying to make like a really nice IPA, right? Everybody loves IPAs, these hazy IPAs that are juicy and fruity. They have huge additions of hops that happens at the end of fermentation. So mm. yeast has already turned all the sugar into, or at least most of the sugar into ethanol and water. It's at that point when we add the hops that hop creep happens. So it's specific to this process when you add dry hops to beer at the end of fermentation. And the reason why it's called creep is because fermentation's done for the most part, right? Yeast is kind of settled out. It's it's done its thing. Mm. And then we add hops in. Hops don't have a lot of sugar in them. It's just a leafy plant, right? We get bitterness and we get fruity aromatics and all this kind of stuff that makes IPAs pleasant. You don't think by adding hops that you're going to add a whole bunch of extra sugar um, in that the yeast is going to ferment. Uh, and so that's what we study. That's one of the things that my PI, Dr. Tom Shellhammer, has done a lot of done a lot of research in. Uh, and my specific aspect is it, it, it is what happens whenever um, the hop themselves change. So if we're picking hops at different points in the gra- in the growing season, how does that impact hop creep? So is it beer related or beer style related? Yes and no. It's hoppy beers that get a dry hop addition at the end of fermentation. Which obviously we're we're in Oregon. We're in the heart of sort oh, yeah. of IPA country, um, so probably a lot of interest here in um, in understanding hop creep better and the effects that it can have on a beer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, brewers especially, right? This impacts brewers the most because if you've got if you've put your beer in a package uh, and, and you've recently added hops and then you put it in the package because you don't want to lose any of that nice hop flavor, this is sort of what the issue was. Um, and, and there's a couple of things that can happen. Like I said, the most egregious is like the exploding bottle, right? I mean, obviously everybody wants to avoid that. Nobody wants uh, packages exploding on consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, But there's a couple of other things that can happen, too. You know, increased ethanol, which higher ABV, that doesn't necessarily sound bad whenever you talk about, oh, it's got a little bit more alcohol in it. Awesome. Fantastic. It's bad because for two reasons. One, because it can throw things out of balance um, Mm. in the beer. But the other thing is there are labeling requirements. So you have to label the ABV percentage Mm. on your beer. And it has to be within, I think it's a half a percent um, of that number. And so if your beer is more than a half a percent, you can get a big old fine from the text or from the TTB, which is the uh, licensing agency, federal licensing agency for beer. So that's kind of a problem, right? Mm. We've got exploding bottles, we've got mislabeled beer, mm. and then the worst thing uh, that that is really sticky is this um, uh, compound called diacetyl. And diacetyl is buttered popcorn. It's, it's, <laughs> it's literally the flavor that they add into butter flavoring to put on butter popcorn. And it turns out yeast makes a lot of that, um, and when you add dry hops, you can actually increase diacetyl or that buttery uh, buttery component. So you've got a higher ABV beer, you may have an exploding bottle, and you've turned your beer, which was nice and hoppy and fruity, into a butter bomb. <laughs> <laughs> which, I mean, I have to say, buttery popcorn, delicious at the yeah. movies, but maybe not when I'm about to take a sip of what I think is a nice cold IPA. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Nobody wants that Nobody wants that in beer, for sure. But it is. It's a problem for brewers, right? Brewers are really uh, sensitive to this. I, I heard... Um, um, I don't remember who said this. It's been tossed around a couple of times, but it takes one. It takes 10 good beers in order to gain consumer loyalty, right? 10 times you've got to drink a good beer from a brewery to say, okay, that brewery makes good beer. It only takes once 
to lose that. Right. So if you've got one beer out there that's got butter in it or it just tastes out of balance or something like that, that's a big deal for brewers and it can really hurt their bottom line. So hop creep is a really important issue. And our study was also partnering with growers because growers want to produce quality hops. And there's questions about when growers can harvest. Um, And we can talk into we can get into that in a little bit. Yeah. So since you specifically were working with growers, was there a specific variety of hops and if yes, like what specifically did this hops bring? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the variety that I use is called Citra. Um, and, and so Citra is uh, it's the number one, um, I think it's the number one grown hop by acreage in the United States currently. Um, and uh, so Citra is a, you can kind of guess from its name, it gives a citrus flavor to beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really prominent. It's in a lot of IPAs. It's a really prized hop for that aromatic character. And so Citra was the one that we were looking at for, uh, for our study. Cool. So other than the citrus aromas mm-hmm. and obviously the off ones that then can come from hop creep, what else can be brought out by these hops? And also, how do you study that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a cool question. There's two pieces of this. Um, and I'll, tar- I'll start with how I studied it. And I think that'll give us an answer about what aromas and flavors Citra can bring out. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did, again, was looking at, um, and this was with Dr. Tom Shellhammer um, and, and a grant that I, I got through the uh, Schoenhardt Scholarship, which is a, a Department of Food Science uh, scholarship. This is all while I was a post-baccalaureate. But what we did was, is we looked at how Citra hops change as they mature in the field. Um, So hops are a perennial plant, which means that they have one growing window or one picking window every year. You don't have to replant them. They grow back on their own Mm. each year, but it's a very, very narrow window. If you think about all the beer that's consumed in the United States, all the times that you drink beer, you drink beer all year round. Hops are only picked in a five week window for the most part. It's in like late August to most of September. And all of the hops in the United States, all of them that are grown in the United States are picked in that window. Hmm. But a lot happens to the hops. So if you pick it early in the window, um, they're, you know, this is what we wanted to study, right? Is what happens when you pick early versus whenever you pick late. And we wanted to look at three different char- three different characteristics. One is what's the chemistry of the hops. Um, so there's a bunch of quality metrics that we look at that we give information for brewers and hop growers. Then we wanted to look at sensory aspect. What do the hops taste like if you smell them? Um, and the third thing we wanted to look at was the creep, right? Mm. We wanted to look at the enzymatic activity. And that was where my project sort of came into this. And there's a lot of gnarly, nasty flavors that you can get out of some of these. <laughs> hops too um you know i as a spoiler when you start off early season the hops are kind of green and grassy and they Mm -hmm. taste like celery in the middle is where you get this resinous tropical citrus character that everybody wants in ipa Mm -hmm. and then later on it turns into a a big old onion and garlic uh mess so yeah (laughs) for people who like onion and garlic maybe maybe not so bad (laughs) yeah not not good for vampires this time of year so Yeah, so all vampires beware. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Is there, um, this might be off topic a little, but is there, is that something that sort of um, brewers include in the marketing to consumers? Like this is with early, made with early hops or made with late hops. I guess how much, I didn't know, I drink a lot of beer and I didn't know a lot about this. So how, I guess how much of this is like 
sometimes communicated to beer drinkers? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say very rarely. Mm. There's, I mean, sometimes uh, sometimes you'll see some one-off beers, you know, like one or two that might say, hey, yeah, this was a late season hop or this was an early season hop. Uh, but for the most part, it's not really communicated to consumers. It's more of a quality um, mm. standpoint, and it's a grower issue um, mm-hmm. as well because growers want to pick hops when brewers want them to pick it, right? But understanding that there's a five-week window um, and they've got to pick all the hops <laughs> in that window. So there's a whole bunch of concerns that the grower is looking at. Like, should I pick, or if I can pick this field early, that's going to help me say, you know, be able to spread out and pick all of these fields. I mean, growers are running 24 hours a day, seven days a week mm. during that five, five week period. So it's super busy. So anything that you can do to help give brewers, give growers a little bit more time to pick or spread things out, mm. um, it is a way to do it is they're going to appreciate that. And so that's why we wanted to look at this is let's look at citrus, see how it matures. And then we can put some actual objective data, some chemistry, some sensory, and then some uh, biochemical processes uh, behind this whole maturity study. So um, talk us um, through your um, post-bac study a little bit. Um, You worked with a particular grower in Washington, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So our partner was Yakima Chief Ranches uh, up in Washington. That's a hop breeding company um, that's partnered with Yakima Chief Hops um, and uh, John Ihaas. Uh, so they're they're breeding new hops, but we were using citrus. So obviously citrus is not uh, you know one that was uh, be, being bred. We're mm-hmm. just using it. But what we did was we uh, we we worked with our grower partner Ashley Hale um, with Yakima Chief Ranches, and she went out during the growing season. She actually picked uh, seven time points. So remember, I told you it's about a five or six week window. So we went one week on the outside edges of that. Mm-hmm. So we got seven time points. She went out into the field and once a week for seven weeks, picked hops from three different fields. Um, and so that's how we got all of our citra. Then she dries them there on the field or, uh, you know, uh, in the field or in their kiln, mm-hmm. uh, wherever that is uh, located in relationship to the field. She dries them and then she ships them to us. And that's whenever we run all of the analyses, chemistry, sensory and biochemistry. Mm. I, I I guess you've, you've explained to us the reasoning behind the seven different time points. But what was the reasoning behind the three different fields? Ah, yeah, just triple it. Just trying to get things in, in uh, you know, oh, more, gotcha. more sample, more variability. <laughs> uh, we do see uh, through some of Tom's other research and, and research across the country, we see that there's a lot of variability from field to field. Um, there was a big study that that Tom um, has been working on for the last couple of years that I was a little bit affiliated with, but that's terroir. Um, and that's how the field itself, um, the soil, the climate, uh, mm. you know, management practices like fertilizer and insecticides, how all of that impacts the flavor of the hop. Um, you know, it, depending on where it's grown. I, I'd never thought about that. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's cool. You think about it with wine. I mean, everybody's really familiar with Napa Valley and, yeah. and Sonoma and all that. Um, maybe one day there will be that with hops, but we don't know. We'll see. We'll dream on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but that was the idea. So we wanted a little bit to, to smooth out the variability and make sure that we've got a triplicate re- you know, study and then uh, that we've got enough information to be able to actually give a, a meaningful data back to the growers and brewers. So this is all like fascinating that there's so much more that goes into beer than a lot of people think. Obviously, <laughs> people just like drink it, enjoy it, and they're like, ah, oh, like it's beer. But there's so it's so cross-functional too between horticulture, food science, chemistry, oh, yeah. 
all of those things. So and it's a fast process. Yeah, what, I, mm-hmm. what I've learned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can make a beer. Um, well, depending on where you brew or where you brew, but you can make a beer within a week. Um, you know, from from grain to glass, uh, as we say. Now, obviously, that's not picking the hops and growing them, right? But right. Just making the beer. Yeah, it's super fast. So you specifically focused on Citra, but do you do this in the lab with other types of hops, other growers, or do you, is it mostly research, or do you do a lot more outreach to growers mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, so I mean, Tom has got a, a several projects going at any one time. This was uh, this one was specifically focused on Citra maturity. Um, some of his prior graduate students had done uh, research into Cascade and Willamette hops. Um, so Cascade is uh, both Cascade. I think Willamette is too. I know Cascade is a public variety. Um, it's the probably the number one grown public variety. Citra is a private variety, mm. um, but uh, uh, Cascade. And so they did some research looking at that, and that's kind of what started kicking this off. I mean, uh, Tom had a research or a graduate student named Kaylin Kirkpatrick, um, and that was her entire master's uh, was fleshing out this idea of hop creep. Like, what is it? How do we study mm-hmm. it? All of that sort of stuff. Uh, so we've looked at enzymatic activity in those uh, and maturity uh, enzymatic. Well, let me back up. We looked at maturity in those. Um, but uh, what hadn't been done was Citra. Um, mm. in terms of chemistry and sensory, and then also the enzymatic analysis of Citra. And so that was, again, that was sort of a big part of what I did uh, for this project as an undergrad was looking at um, the sensory component, the biochemistry component, and then uh, assessing the, the chemistry data that, that um, we do sort of day-to-day in the, in the hop lab. Yeah, so let's get into those three things. So, mm-hmm. so you've you've partnered with a grower in Yakima. They dry the hops, ship it to OSU, and then you look at the chemistry, the sensory, and the enzymatic. So, mm-hmm. talk us through the three different ones. Like, what what does that mean? What does <laughs> testing that mean? Yeah, maybe I'll start with sensory, right? Because I think that one's the easiest one to grasp. Mm-hmm. Sensory is is what do these hops smell like? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. I won't get too far off into the weeds. Um, but in this study, what we did was we served, we ground out hops, dried hops, um, and served it to a trained sensory panel using a process that we call uh, check all that apply, CATA. And so this is essentially we get, we, we train the panel on uh, like 16 or so different traits, um, things like fruity, tropical, resinous, citra, herbal, uh, smoky, um, you know, uh, uh, tea, woody, um, any of these characteristics that are sort of typical to hops. We train them on that. Uh, we ask them to smell through the hops and check everything that applies to that hop. Um, so that was the sensory aspect of this uh, that we looked at. The chemistry and asp- just just yeah, a little ahead. plug that if you want to listeners, if you want to be part of the sensory panel, you can smell hops and and tick a box. <laughs> Absolutely. Get in touch with Cade. <laughs> right. Yeah, that sure. is the official way to do it at this point. Abs- absolutely. You can get in touch with me or uh, either of Tom's other two graduate students, Lindsay Rubottom and Ron Samia. Yeah. 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 Smell some hops. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. We got a lot of sensory projects going throughout the year um, and, and a lot of stuff going on. I mean, my, my research as a graduate student is actually going to involve uh, smoky hops, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily continuing with hop creep, but looking at smoky hops. And so, yeah, we're going to be um, evaluating some smoky beers um, and smoky hops at some point in the future. So, I am one of these trained panelists. I can say that it is a lot of fun. I highly recommend. <laughs> Kate, are you also a trained panelist for Jenna? 
Uh, I am, yeah. I, I actually am. I, I've had a lot of gin and smoky wines. <laughs> they were pretty intense. Yeah, yeah listeners, uh, go back a few episodes after you've you've either listened live here or listened to this as a podcast and check out Smoky Smoky Wine because that is when our uh, current host, Jenna Fryer, was interviewed herself as a guest about Smoky Wine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so that's the, chem- chem- the, the sensory aspect mm-hmm. of it. I think that one's easier to grasp. Uh, chemistry, I could go way off into the weeds, but I'll try to keep it simple. That's just, there's a, there's a number of basic, um, quality analyses that we do for hops. So hops and beer are there primarily for bitterness and for flavor, right? So sensory is going to look at, uh, you know, how does it smell to a human nose? But Mm. what chemistry does is it correlates those two things to actual compounds, right? Mm. So we're looking at to see, uh, what is the bitterness level of the hop? Um, what is the, what are the total oils? What's the breakdown of all of the aromatic compounds, uh, in there and then also uh you know where and and we we um normalize everything across the dry matter of the hop or the dry weight of the hop so that's essentially what we do for chemistry those are pretty standard industry-wide hop quality analyses uh that we do for this and so we did that as well uh for this study and that's actually something that your lab is sort of specialized in right Mm -hmm. part of the a very big day-to-day of of um your advisor's lab. Yeah, exactly. That's actually, um, so my primary was primary responsibility right now as a first year student is to manage what we call the hop lab. So there's a lot of day-to-day analysis, a bunch of different projects, people from industry will send in, um, to have their hops analyzed and we'll provide that chemistry data back to them. There's a number of uh, projects that we partner with through like agenda was saying through the department of agriculture, through the USDA. Um, and also, uh, you know, the college of agricultural sciences here, uh, at OSU, a number of projects that are, that are we're partnering with at any time but yeah that's my primary responsibility right now we'll process around three or four hundred samples of hops um this year <laughs> just uh, oh, okay i thought you were about to say a day <laughs> no 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 no, no uh, but it's still quite a lot I mean, yeah it's quite a few hops uh to do but yeah that's a big part of what we do and so that chemistry data is um done by undergraduate students in the hop lab uh through tom and so yeah that's a that's a big part of what we do that chemistry analysis and component number three is is the enzyme yeah, aspect, the, the which we've enzyme. already talked about a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like I said at the top of the show and sort of the crash course to brewing, remember that this enzyme thing becomes important when you add dry hops to a beer that's finished, right? A beer that's done. Uh, it doesn't that that it doesn't have any more fermentation left. So that's what we do for the enzyme analysis. We take a beer that's finished. Um, it's it's a, a beer that's got high dextrins. And so dextrins are just long chain sugars anything that's over three or four individual sugar molecules um a quick aside yeast can consume two sugars or fewer so Mm. maltose glucose or fructose they can consume those um and then maltotriose some yeast you can do that's Mm. a three train maltotriose three chains Mm -hmm. um anything bigger than that yeast can't consume and so that's when why uh, beer has some residual sweetness sometimes right it's got some of these um residual dextrins in it it also contributes to mouthfeel it can make the beer feel thicker and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So those are in the beer, but the yeast can't consume them. When you add the hops to the beer, enzymes in the hops break down those sugar chains into fermentable sugars. So if there's yeast present, it'll take those sugars and then ferment them, turn them into alcohol, CO2, and diacetyl. So our process is what we do, and this is again what Kaylin Kirkpatrick did with Tom Schellhammer, um, was we just add dry hops to a finished beer. We add in a chemical called sodium azide so that we kill off any microbes that might actually be present. Uh, and then we measure the increase in maltose, glucose, um, fructose, fructose, and maltotriose. So we look 
look at those four sugars. And if we see increases in those four sugars, that means we're going to see hop creep. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's how we do it. So we look at that and, and uh, then we're able to say, yeah, if you add hops to beer at this rate, this is the hop creep potential that you might expect to see. Gotcha. And yeah. so, OK, so we have the chemistry, the sensory and the and the enzymatic. So what what is your recommendation, I guess, to brewers from the seven <laughs> time points that you evaluated? Is there like an optimal one to go with to minimize hop creep, but I, I guess optimize the taste, the flavor of your beer that isn't butter, that isn't garlic or onion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there, right? To optimize what you're looking for. Because mm. we saw, I'll give you, so uh, like I said in sensory, if you ha- if you harvest hops early, they're grassy and green. In the middle, they're nice and tropical and fruity. So that's and, what the panelists essentially determined. Exactly. Like from smelling early picked ho- citra hops, yeah, they it, said smell like grass. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, grassy, you know, celery, green mm-hmm. pepper, all those kind of characteristics, and then the onion, garlic um, mm-hmm. at the end, uh, and and so yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. But yeah, you see, so you see these sensory components and you think, okay, well, that means I want to pick the hops where that, uh, where it smells citrusy and tropical, Mm -hmm. right? That's what I want to do. The enzymatic analysis is where this becomes interesting. So if we let the hops sit on the vine all the way through the growing season, the enzymatic capacity goes down. It goes down pretty linearly. So that means that there's less likelihood of hop creep the longer the hops sit on the vine. So you think, oh, fantastic. From a brewer's perspective, let's just let it sit on there for seven weeks and then we don't have hop creep anymore. A.K.A. no butter right. in your mouth. No butter, no exploding bottles, mm-hmm. no increased CO2, no mm-hmm. ethanol, all that other stuff. Right. So you think, great, that sounds great. But no, that's going to be an onion garlic bomb and right. you're going <laughs> to have a really nasty beer. Mm. So you do have to balance this a little bit. And it's one of the cool aspects that Lindsay. Rubottom has also got some kilning work that she's done, which is looking at how hops are dried in the field. Mm. And one of the things that we looked at in that study is the enzymatic activity and how kilning impacts enzymes. And so she's got a paper uh, that was written out looking at a bunch of different studies and their enzymatic activity. So I'd encourage people to look at that. It's really cool research to show the differences in hop variety and their enzymatic activity. Because I mentioned Cascade earlier. Cascade has high enzymatic activity. Citra doesn't have as much. It's actually one of the lower of the ones that we've studied. Uh, But you've got all these sort of competing things that you're looking for. I think with Citra as an aroma hop, I I think most brewers really want that Citra picked at its ideal uh, sensory uh, component. I think there are ways that a brewer can mitigate hop creep sort of down the road. Mm. It's not like it's not like the brewers don't have any tools uh, uh, to do this or to fix things down the road. So, yeah, it's a balance. You're kind of looking at, OK, I don't really want an onion garlic hop, but maybe I can let it sit a little bit later, maybe in that three or four week range um, and then pick it there and we'll reduce our hop creep potential, but still have all of those wonderful flavors that we're looking for. Hmm. So what are some of the ways that you can you can pick the hops at the ideal point from a flavor perspective, but then be able to kind of treat hop creep on the back end and like ah. treat that enzymatic activity like once it's already in the bottle or yeah. on the line. Yeah. So, well, so you can wait to put it in the bottle. That's mm-hmm. probably the easiest one, mm-hmm. right? It is you've got your beer, it's finished, it's sitting in the tank. You add your dry hops, wait a couple of days and you'll see that, uh, that alcohol and CO2 will increase and then just put that on your label. 
right? Like that would just let the beer go all the way to fruit, all the way to, to full attenuation. All the sugars are done at the end. That's a pretty easy way to do it. There's a slight problem with that in the diacetyl. So yeast will actually, it produces a, a compound called alpha acetolactate, which eventually gets converted into the butter thing. I won't go down that path. I'll mm. just leave that there. Uh, but yeast can take up diacetyl mm. and clean up all that butter flavor. So that butter flavor happens in every fermentation. Yeast produce this and you can taste the beer. Uh, and if it tastes like butter, that beer is not ready. So let it go and the yeast will consume up all the diacetyl. So you think, okay, well, why won't the yeast just do that with uh adding hops well the yeast have already starting to go dormant because they finished their fermentation mm. so they've got to wake up re-ferment and then go back to sleep and some of them are just like nah i'm not cleaning up the house i'm just i did my thing i'm, I'm done <laughs> i'm not doing the diacetyl anymore mm -hmm. uh, you know. <laughs> so, so so there are and can be elevated levels of diacetyl uh from from hops so that's something that you have to watch out for uh a way to get rid of that is to just make sure there's no yeast whenever you do your dry hops filter the beer or um you know uh uh, use some sort of uh, additive to get rid of let the yeast drop all the way out of solution so there's nothing in suspension then add your dry hops and then package hmm. another aspect of all of this that i that i found really interesting that you told us about in the pre-interview is that hop creep isn't like a new phenomenon but it's mm. become mm -hmm. a problematic one in sort of the last decade or two yeah exactly that's the that's the ipa craze right <laughs> i mean we think about the popularity of ipas has really exploded with craft beer and that's when it started to become a problem so there's a famous brewery um called allagash up on the east coast and i think it was a 2018 craft brewers conference they were giving a presentation on this new phenomenon called hop creep right and it wasn't necessarily new uh it, there's a really cool paper from uh jake kirkendall uh and a a scientist luke chadwick uh at bell's brewery um and they did some research and did some historical dives there's actually references to hop creep back in the 1600s in the german georgica curiosa wow which, <laughs> yeah which is this just giant encyclopedia uh but if there's references in there and it says in barrels hops are given to re-fermentation essentially is what it says and that's like okay well that's hop creep so we noticed this back in the 1600s um and and again it became really this new problem in here especially in the united states by just dumping hot loads of hops into beer recently hmm. yeah to make the much beloved ipa exactly exactly <laughs> yeah and, i mean it's been fun too right like i said the uh, uh tom's done a lot of research on, on this he's had several grad students look at it it's going to be something that we continue to look at in projects because i think it's a really interesting piece of most of the studies that we look at if you think about my upcoming smoke work um how does smoke impact you know the hops ability to generate these enzymes if there's you know one of the ways that hops might generate enzymes is because it's dark outside so they need to be able to consume the little bit of sugar that's in there uh, while when they can't photosynthesize so if you've got smoke covering things and making it dark and they're not getting as much sunlight maybe enzymatic activity increases mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't um, so who knows but that's one of those things that we're going to look at uh, in that research yeah so all you beer drinkers out there fear not Cade is, is going to be on the job. He's going to look at how does smoke uh, affect our hops and therefore our beer. Because obviously wildfires becoming more severe, more... Yeah. Um, more abundant so yeah i mean we have two people in this room who've studied right. smoke impacts of agricultural <laughs> products right so this is yeah this is going to be a uh, it's a big thing for the future mm -hmm. so you've mentioned a few times that this citra hop maturity was part of your post-bac research mm -hmm. and that now you're on to your master's so 
What got you into doing a postbac in food science? <laughs> so this can kind of be a long story, uh, I, I, <laughs> uh, but it's a fun one, I think. Um, so I had to do a postbac because uh, I was really interested in getting a, a degree in brewing. I wanted to go to master's and ultimately PhD uh, in beer and food science, but my background didn't have any science uh, components to it. So I was actually, I went to business school, uh, graduated from business school back in 2009, and then immediately went into law school. Um, and I was a lawyer for about seven years uh, before making the career change over to brewing. A so, big one. Yeah, 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 it was quite a big one. Um, so you can imagine, like, law doesn't really require you to know chemistry and biology and biochemistry <laughs> and these sorts of things. Um, so I had to go shore up uh, that experience. I uh, I was a lawyer. We lived in Texas. My family and I lived in Texas. Um, and uh, I was a lawyer there. I was happy with what I was doing, but I felt like I could be happier doing other things and doing things beer-related. I was homebrewing a lot. I loved that. Uh, mm -hmm. um, one of my uh, a best friend of mine gave me a Mr. Beer kit, and that's a how to brew beer in your house in your own kitchen. I brewed beer, and I was like, "This is amazing! <laughs> I'm doing this." Um, what was the catalyst for that gift? Just you enjoyed drinking beer, and yeah. 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 I mean, me and him had just been enjoying some craft beers. It was back in, I think, 2010 or so. Mm. And so the craft craft beer scene was just starting to, to uh, hop. Mm. And uh, ah. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. And so I also like to cook as well. Mm -hmm. And so he said, OK, Cade likes to cook. He likes beer. Maybe he'd like to cook beer. And he, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the obviously intended side effect is that I share the beer with him. A clever gift. But even he, I don't think, expects me to you know take it this far but it is uh what we did so again i, I had to shore up that that science background so i came here as a post-baccalaureate student and then started working in tom's lab as an undergraduate student in the hops lab doing that day-to-day -day chemistry analysis so i started there uh got involved with this project um and started doing some additional projects for dr shellhammer and then ultimately a uh, position became available in his lab and he offered it to me which i accepted so yeah. And here you are on here the radio. And I think another uh, interesting aspect about you that we wanted to discuss is that this isn't your first time doing podcasting. Oh, yeah. You, in fact, are a podcaster yourself. Yeah. So I have a beer science related podcast. Uh, it's actually called The Brew Lab. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's through Brewlosophy. So it's a, um, one of the uh, uh, websites that I'm affiliated with is brewlosophy.com. It's pretty cool. We do a bunch of homebrew experiments uh, with, uh, you know, testing scientific variables, testing things like uh, like I would test in the lab, not as rigorously, obviously, as we're testing here at Oregon State, uh, but doing those those sorts of things. So, yeah, brewlosophy.com. That's kind of one of the first ways I got involved in the brewing industry. And yeah, it encouraged me to do a podcast, which is called The Brew Lab. We've now released, I think, through today, 85 episodes um, every week for the last two years. And we're going strong and continue and plan to continue that way. So that's amazing. That's amazing that that's something you started during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it was because of the pandemic that you felt like you had the time to start it. But yeah, you know, I think that was also the pandemic was an impetus for us to move here. So we actually moved here in October 2020. Oh. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so we moved here and then I started the podcast in February of 2021. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was a I think that was definitely an uh, influencing factor um, to, for us to be able to move here. So um, will you will you, have you already sort of started some of your work for your master's or is it for the first year you run you run the hop lab? Um, you're doing all of that work, sort of wrapping up your postback things. And then will you jump in? 
sort of year two? Yeah. So the funding for my project um, doesn't actually hit until January of this upcoming year. Um, you know, we've played around with some things. I can tease that. Uh, we've played around with some stuff because we were really excited about the work. Um, and so we've done a little bit. And that's why, you know, again, if you want to smell some smoky beers, there may be an opportunity uh, for you to do that probably in the spring or, or uh, winter terms. Uh, so we've played around a little bit. But again, most of the funding for my project is going to start uh, in January. So yeah, Hops Lab running and managing the chemistry for now and then ultimately transitioning into that smoke work. Gotcha. Need mm. to be a little more patient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but it's cool, though, too. You get to learn everything, right? You learn the chemistry, learn the analyses, and then be able to apply it to your work, which is really fun. Yeah, well, it, unfortunately, um, we are slowly running to the end of our show. This has been so educational for me about something that I love to drink <laughs> and knew very little about. Um, but before we have to say goodbye, we have three traditions uh, on inspiration dissemination. The first is, what is your favorite thing about your research? Oh, I, I mean, I love beer, <laughs> right? I, 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 get to, I get to drink beer as part of my job. Um, you know, it's a little bit more in de more detailed than that. I, I, you know, we get to study all the science aspect of it. I, whenever I was a lawyer, I used to, I used to tell people there's two things that I really enjoyed about being a lawyer. One of that was, one of those was the pursuit of knowledge, like the just searching around trying to find evidence you know the logical exploration of things pursuit of knowledge the other thing was being a teacher um, and trying to teach judges and clients the law teach the judge why you should win you know helping and finding evidence and all that sort of stuff that actually is a skill that translates pretty well to the lab we're still trying to find evidence and then we're trying to tell people what the conclusions of our research were uh, you know so I think that 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 aspect plays along but the thing I like the most about it is yeah I get to do beer for a living mm. <laughs> which is fun <laughs> well, so with that, especially as I'm sure beer was some people's drink of choice this weekend and maybe mm -hmm. tomorrow, what is your favorite type of beer? Oh, man, that's a <laughs> tough one. Um, you know, so I, I've, sa I, I've said this a bunch of times on the, the Brewlosophy podcast and also on the Brew Lab. I am a... Uh, Primarily a fizzy yellow light beer drinker. Yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is like, hey, wait, wait, the hop guy, this guy's studying hops and he likes, he's drinking like Bud Miller Coors. Yeah, uh, I, I really do. Uh, but the beer I keep on tap at my house all the time is a Kolsch, and that's a German yes. light lager. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's the one I think I like the most. The German loves to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, great. <laughs> So for anyone at a, at a Halloween party this weekend, maybe pick up a Kolsch on, oh, your, yeah. on your way to the party. Okay, and so the second tradition is a piece of advice, whether it be for your future self, for undergrads out there, for fellow graduate students, just any advice that you want to give. All right, so I... I, uh, I, I uh, had a piece of advice for a past my past self um, and I liked that piece of advice so much that I got it tattooed on my arm um, and it says, oh. it says make it so um, and yes that's a Star Trek reference for anybody that's listening John <laughs> Picard I love it uh, but it's on there to remind me that we're that I'm the one that's responsible for making it so if I want to go and do beer um, as a career and as a job I'm the one that's responsible for making that happen no mm -hmm. one else is going to do it for you you have to do it um, and so that's what that's what it is. So make it so uh, is a reminder that you're the one that's responsible for making your life be the way that you want it to be. Um, and so make it so. That's my advice. That's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, our third tradition is that you get to pick your outro song nice. um, that we're going to boogie to here in the uh, in the radio studio. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> I had a word blank there. Um, so tell us what is your song and why did you pick it? All right. So so my song is Ain't Nothing That a Beer Can't Fix. Uh, it's by Thomas Rhett and John Party. Uh, and I just love the song. I, I think it's totally true, right? There's nothing to me uh, that a beer can't fix. I just, you know, whatever the problems are, whatever the day you're having, um, have a nice cold beer and everything's going to be all right. That's a great reason to pick a song. You just like it. Yeah. <laughs> also, some great secondary advice, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Two for one. I mean, I was a lawyer for a long time, right? So I just uh, yeah, can't help it sometimes. <laughs> well, Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been uh, very educational for me. Um, I've had a lot of fun. Um, yeah. With that, please enjoy Cade's, Cade's choice of an outro song. You're all alone at a party You wanna dance with somebody But you ain't got a clue how to ask You and your girl had a fight And now she's saying goodbye She ran upstairs and packed her bags It could be raining on your perfect vacation You could be stressed about your work situation Ain't gotta listen to me but all I'm saying Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>